impact fashion is Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. And on today's special anniversary episode, we celebrate the second birthday of this podcast. I'll share my thoughts on this milestone that I can't really wrap my head around and some of my favorite and most important bits of the episode from this past year. Hello, lovelies. Wow. Two years. I don't even know how to process that information. Really, it's, it's, I actually, I mentioned it to my mom um, a couple days ago. I was like, by the way, the podcast is turning two with the next episode. And she goes, wow, really? And I'm in the same boat as her. <laughs> it's been, it's really been, it's really been a fantastic two years. And I have to say that a lot of times people ask me why I start the podcast or what the point of it is. And um, there it's, I do it cause it's fun. <laughs> I do it cause it's fun. I do it cause I think it's important. I do it because I think that there really needs to be a space for these kinds of conversations. And it is my honor and privilege to provide that space. And it's also been my honor and privilege to talk to so many of you um, over the last two years. And I know that many of you have found me through the podcast and welcome aboard. That's there's there's a special place in my heart for podcast listeners. And and I think that the fact that, you know, we've created these spaces where we can talk about the hard things and the not so hard things, you know, but just all of the different facets that make up our lives or the lives of the people around us. And that's been really, really, really special to me uh, to be able to be a part of and share that with you over the last two years. And what I've been thinking about is how this past year differs from the first year. Because I did have like a little bit of a, I don't want to say plan, because I'm not the most, I don't want to say that I'm not the most thought out person, but I tend to I, I embrace half-baked plans pretty often. Um, and when I started the podcast, I actually had this vision of of having it be a, a, like not an orthodox show. I didn't want it to feel from. Um, I'm not really sure why. I just didn't, I don't know. I just didn't want to do that. And what I've noticed about myself, and especially in reviewing the context of what's happened over the past year, is that I've really enjoyed leaning into that. And I know that that's something that a lot of you have enjoyed as well. Really leaning into that from aspect of it um, and really talking about the issues that are important to our community. And I have to say that at some point over this last year, I stopped caring about whether it was like too from specific or something like that. And instead I started thinking, you know what? Maybe it needs to be more from specific. Maybe we need to really be talking about these things that we just don't, that we just don't talk about. And that has really been my honor and privilege to be able to facilitate those kinds of conversations, to be able to be a platform um, for all types of women from or otherwise to share their stories and talk about issues that are important to them. And that, I mean, it's, it's, it's a responsibility that I take very seriously. Um, I'm 
I'm very careful about who I have on the show. I get pitched a lot, by the way. If you there's someone who you think would be great, feel free to send me an email. If that's yourself, that's fantastic. Um, and I do get pitches quite often. And my my the first question that I ask myself is always, does this person have a point? And are they the right person to be making the point? Um, you know, are is this person you know who's reaching out to me someone who is qualified to? be talking about whatever issue it is that they want to be talking about and do I think it's something that needs to be spoken about do I think it's something that people will benefit from is it something that I'm particularly interested in you know learning about or things like that and and I do take that pretty seriously you know the selection of my guests is so important and it's been and it, it like I, I honor and privilege just keeps coming up in my head it has just been an honor and a privilege and I'm excited to celebrate this milestone with you. Two years. Two years. Over 70,000 downloads. Like, I know shows that have been around for much longer than mine and don't have that number of downloads. So thank you. Thank you for sharing the show with your friends. Thank you for leaving reviews. Uh, If you're on Apple Podcasts, the reviews and ratings really do make a big difference. So thank you for that. Um, If if there is something, you know, if there is a particular episode that you think a friend of yours would like, by all means, share it with them. Let them know if this is the first episode that you're listening to, then hi, welcome aboard. It's a fun party. (laughs) Um, Feel free to go back. There's a huge back catalog, nearly 100 episodes to listen to that you can, you know, kind of get a feel for what the show is and what I am and, and what we do around here. And, and that's, and that's what the party is. It's just, I'm smiling from ear to ear. This is just so exciting. And I wanted to celebrate with you also. So if you look in the show notes, um, there's a, in the show notes, there is a link to a, um, uh, there's a link to a little, like it's an image that'll pop up. Um, and it's, it's a Starbucks card and I've loaded that up so that a good amount of you can, uh, have your morning coffee on me. And I hope that you take advantage of that. Uh, do me a favor, one per person. Um, and, uh, that'll last until, you know, I hope you're listening to this early until that runs out. Um, if you are listening to this on Spotify, then um, unfortunately the show note links don't work for you. So you can go to impactfashionnyc.com, hit the, um, go to the podcast page, um, which you can find in the footer of any page on the site. And then um, you'll see the most recent episode and you can get the link to the photo there. Um, and you could just scan that at checkout at any Starbucks and your coffee's on me. And and I'm just happy to party with you. I really am. I'm just happy to party with you. What I've done for this episode is that I've taken clips from the conversations that I've had over the last year that I think have focused on topics that needed more focusing on, um, that needed more attention. Um, I do think that there's something to be said, um, and I do think that a really special thing about this platform is that it is a it is a space where we can tackle hard topics with sensitivity and with, you know, with really getting to the meat and potatoes of what it is that we're talking about. And like I said, it's a responsibility that I take very seriously. Obviously, the whole Aguna and Jewish divorce issue has been huge this past year. Um, And the thing... Ironically enough, uh, the the episode that we're starting with, um, these episodes go in chronological order. So I'm putting them here. I'm putting these clips in the episode in the order in which they were released. And the episode that I'm starting with is actually an interview that I did with Rifka Meyer from London. And I interviewed her at the very beginning of the year about her experience with 
um, having been in Aguna for nearly a decade. And I felt like I needed to talk to her because I, I mean, I really thought that I was speaking to a unicorn and I just, and, and later on in the year it became apparent that that was not the case. So we'll talk more about that as we get to those clips. Um, if at any point while you're listening to this episode, by the way, which has short clips, um, from the episodes that I think have been just, you know, really taking on the hard issues, um, if, if at any point while you're listening, you think, oh, that's something I'd like to hear more about, scroll back in your podcast feed and listen to those episodes. I'll give you all the information before the clip. Um, and you just need to look for the name of the person who I've mentioned. So to get started, we're going to go with Rifka Meyer. Enjoy. So we had concrete reasons to end this relationship. And this is where things get a little funky. Um, in Like we said before, in Jewish law, the, the legal of the marriage according to Jewish law is really important um and if the divorce process is drawn out that basically means that your life gets put on hold um what was it apparent from the very beginning that this was going to be different from your first divorce straight up straight up I mean the first divorce he won and I just knew it was going to go straight forward. He wasn't looking to hurt me. We had five kids together. He's not a bad person. It was just not right. Um, we were both very young and it just wasn't right. Um, but there was no animosity. And thank God, I'm a child whose parents got divorced when I was very young. I could not bear to put my kids through the way I felt. I was very adamant not to. This was between me and him. And, you know, we sorted it out. And thank God we are fine. Um, this one, due to the nature of the separation um, and his personality and his issues, I just saw straight up, this is going to be difficult. And there and then I actually, the day I actually left my home that night um, with my kids and the next day, one of the leading rabbis of the um, Bet Din of the Jewish court here um, managed to get him to leave my home. And I came back and I had all my locks changed and um, there and then I spoke to the rabbi to arrange the, arrange the get and he kept saying, in time, in time, we'll do it. You know, there's a lot going on right now. Let him calm down. And that's when I was like panicking, like, no, 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 no. We have to do it now. We have to do it now. But like the second one gets to think, the second you're like, one second, I can use this to my advantage. And that's, that's what they do. So, yeah. So when you say that that someone can use it to their advantage what what was the beginning of that what was the beginning of that process like what did it what did it look like you know i know i know it was a long time ago <laughs> yeah but it's very clear because the feeling i feel now is parallel to what i felt then like the negative versus the positive so now i feel like my lungs can expand and then i felt like I was being suffocated slowly, slowly, slowly. The hands are going tighter around your neck and squeezing you and you can't because you just know that the chance every day that goes by, every hour of the day that goes by, that he's not going to grant you the divorce, that he's hearing more stuff from more people. He's talking, he's, and, and, and he's getting that push and that energy to, to start using bargaining chips. And, and it's not okay. Like that should never be. People have a right to get married. People have the right to get divorced. There should never be, especially with no children, even with children, you have a custody issue, go to court. You have a financial issue, go to court or mediator or something. But never, ever, ever use the fact of granting someone their freedom 
as a bargaining chip for anything. It's just not acceptable. It, it is not acceptable on any level under for any circumstance. Like you said, if, you, if there are issues that need to be worked out, then they can be worked out in a civil court. But by choosing to work them out in, in a Jewish court, what that essentially did was meant that your life was put on hold for close to 10 years, right? Right. Yeah. The nine what, and a half. Yeah. What, what were those nine and a half years like? Um, well, at the beginning, I know that you're only two weeks past them. So this, I'm sure that this is a question. If I would ask you this in a year from now, it would be a little bit of a different answer. Yeah, but listen, the first, the first few years, I had a lot going on in general. Um, there was a lot going on with the, the whole issue. I think for at least the first three years, I didn't even think about. I mean, I did think about it. Um, there was. There's just a lot of, um, I don't know how to say it, a lot of other issues that had to be um, taken care of. And, and it, that was kind of put on the back burner. Although there were many times I said, you know what, I'm not dealing with these other issues. Let me just get my divorce and move on. But I knew for what was right and for my family, I just had to pursue. Um, once everything else calmed down, I tried everything. We, re I work we worked so hard. There was an amazing woman, um, who was then working at the London Beth Inn, uh, Joanne Greenaway. Um, she is very, very, um, passionate about helping women or men, but helping women get their divorce, like working in that, um, in that, trying to sort it out and get it all, um, negotiated fairly for people and um she tried so hard we tried many um many negotiations many um we flew to europe because once when the uk was then part of europe there was a chance of going under the european courts we tried um everything there were so many tactics that we used but um it was like hitting that brick wall time after time. There was a time that we were literally ready. I was told to be at the bed in on this date at this time. It's going to be done. And he didn't show. He didn't come. He bought, He backed out last minute. Um, and each time was that being pushed to the ground and having to get back up and try again. The next clip is from my conversation on alcoholism with Talia Bundell. She shares her own journey to becoming alcohol free, what that meant societally, and how that affected her life. When I was exposed to alcohol for the first time, and I was, or rather for the whatever amount of time it was, when I was exposed to alcohol in Israel is when I would say I started getting more of an unhealthy relationship with it. And I wasn't able to like leave a table if there was still alcohol on it. Like I would, like I would be the one to finish the glass. And also usually I'm a very, very aware of how people are responding to me or reacting to me in specific atmospheres and the type of person that likes to be, I like to be polite. I don't like to insert myself in overextended ways, even though I am, I would say that I am a, an eclectic personality and I definitely like to make my voice heard and I have a lot to say. Um, I don't like to overstep and I don't like to be too much. Sometimes I don't have control over it, but when I'm in someone's house that I've just met or I'm a guest in someone's home, I like to be, you know, um, more, I, I like, I like to, you know, keep it, keep it calm, but I wouldn't be able to stay that way because if they had one on the table, I wouldn't even know to be like, 
just have one glass. I'd be like, oh, can you pass it back? Can you pass it? Can I, you know, can I get some more wine or whatever? Even though there's like, what, 15 people at the table, and there's only like three bottles on the table. I'd be like, no, I'm going to get my three glasses. I'm going to have those glasses. Yeah. Um, and that was really just the start, I would say. Then, it's also important to note that at this point, you are about 18, probably. 19, and, but yes. Okay, yeah. So 19. Um, I think it is also important to note that the legal drinking age in Israel is 19. Yes. Um, which <laughs> it was I, legal. It was absolutely right, legal. Which was legal. Um, so I do want to just point that out. But also that um, you're in a really loose, unsupervised scenario. You know, it, yeah. is, it is a much um, more... It's, it is just a, a freer year. And for some people, that's fantastic. And for some people, that causes other problems. Yeah, exactly. And, if it, and it's not, you're not monitored. It's not like someone's on top of you. And right. it's also not like someone whose house you're at for the first time. They're not thinking, oh, this person has a problem. Unless right. you exhibit those signs, which at sometimes I did. But no one's going to be like, um, I think you need to stop unless, you know, things get messy. Um, so... So that was kind of how it went my Israel year. And it started off with like, oh, just a little bit of wine at, you know, this meal, that meal. And then it got to a point where, and this is common for a lot of people, their gap year, they experiment with things and not everybody takes it with them once they get home. Some people just have a crazy year. Some people have a great year. It, you go to learn, you go to grow, you go to become independent and, you know, you become more of yourself. Whereas I, I did that, but I also, like I said, my experimentation turned into more of a problem. And it was also because not because I was in Israel on my own, it was sort of, I kind of supported myself. I got some help from my parents monetarily and things like that. But I actually, like I got a job there and I was trying to, you know, be able to maintain the things that I wanted that I, that were extras. So as someone that's trying to be like thrifty abroad, <laughs> you're going to buy the cheapest, the bottle that has the most in it so that you can get the, the, you know, the biggest bang for your buck. So, you know, positivity is thrifting, but the negativity is you really don't even know what you're putting in your body and you're just buying whatever is the max amount you can get, which something was something that stuck with me even years later. So this was like about 13 years ago or so. And even back then, I wouldn't have been able to say that I had a problem. I was just like, oh, you know, I'm a teenager. I'm just, or, you know, legally allowed to do this. So in my mind, if it's legal, what's the problem? Like, okay, people get drunk, people get wasted. But there is, so that was just kind of my year there. So there was no real awakening there. Then as I got older, once I got back home, and I would have these instances where we would be at a party, and I would be, you know, the messy one, and... I've, I've had plenty of, of lows, unfortunately. There, there were times that, you know, I was the one that couldn't really walk out of, you know, the party or the bar or the wherever it was. I would have to be carried out. You know, that happened a couple times. And it, it's an embarrassing story. But I'm not embarrassed of, like, where I am now. And I'm not embarrassed of the fact that I went through something like that or that I did that to myself. Because I know that, a, I'm in a place now where I'm able to look back and use these examples as a way to, you know, catapult me to the future and be like, this is not the kind of person I want to be. I don't want to be this person. And I don't want to do this to my friends and my family. I don't want to be that person for them. And I don't want to be that person for me. So when people are like, I don't understand how you can talk about this. Like, isn't it embarrassing? Like, why are you talking about like when you were throwing up and stuff like that? I'm like, because I need to, I need to talk about that so people can hear that A, they're not alone and B, 
it's something it happens it happens and you that's not the end all be all you can change your circumstance i was the kind of person that had to come to terms with the fact that i am not allowed to drink i cannot drink i don't know my limits i don't know how to stop what started off as not being able to leave the dinner table um as a guest without the bottle being empty was i can't leave the party unless the bar is dry I would be at the party of someone who's not even a super close friend and I would stay till the very, very end. And it got to, when, when my husband and I were dating, it was like, oh, we were both kind of on the same page. Like we both drank this, that, but he was never really a big drinker. Then once we were married and we're married now, um, thank God, nine years, there were, there were t times where he's like, I, you don't have to be the last one to leave the party. And I'm like, but what do you mean? Like we're still having a good time. For me, there was no limit. Like there was no, I, I didn't know how to tap out. I didn't know how to tap out. And that, that's like an extreme and absolute sign. Towards the end of my alcoholism, or I don't know, towards the, the last, the, once I was able, I was getting closer and closer to a stop. And I had tried for years to stop, or rather in the beginning of my journey to becoming um, alcohol-free, I had told myself, oh, you know what? Like, let's just try doing one or two glasses or I'll just have one thing at, at dinner or, or, you know, just a glass during while we're watching TV or something like that was never able to stick to it. Then it got to a point, um, where I was like, okay, then I, I'm not going to have any hard alcohol. I'll only allow myself to have wine and beer because wine and beer is not a big deal. It's light. It's fun, whatever. It got to a point. I was finishing a six pack before 12 PM in the day. I was buying a bottle of Chenin Blanc, finishing it before I finished work. I'd be getting on the train drunk. I would go to lunch with a friend and we would finish a bottle. I wasn't able to go to a show, a movie, a, anything. I was not able to go anywhere without either pre-gaming, and I'm talking like two cans of beer in my coat pocket, chug one on the way to the train, chug one at the train, then I get to my location and have a drink. Then before we leave, I have a drink or two, and then before we leave, also had to have a drink. There was... There was no time where I was like, oh, I, I can do this sober. And it wasn't like I was using it as a crutch. And it wasn't like I was like, oh, my life is so hard, I have to drink. No, it was just, it's around me, I can do it, why not? It was just was, kind of part of your baseline. Yeah, this is like how I, how I function, like how I roll. Right. There was one time a friend of mine had a bris. It was like one of the, like, honestly, this bris was like so beautiful and so elaborate. It was more like elaborate than some weddings I've been to. And in my head, I'm thinking, okay, it's 11 a.m. There's an open bar. It must be okay to drink. And that day, by the end of the day, I was throwing up blood in my bathroom. Oh my like God. that's, yeah. The things that we allow ourselves is, that's part of what I think alcoholism, part of the biggest problem is that we convince ourselves that circumstance is what allows us to get to that point. Because, well, but what an alcoholic or addicts need to realize is we're not, we're not able to do that. That's not something that we're allowed to do or should do or can do. And um, when I was speaking to my therapist about it, when I, I did start therapy in the beginning of um, last year, she, she was like, this is how you look at it. How an addict looks at it is an allergy because I don't know because they're they, like, my body just, it, it's the, almost the, actually the opposite of an allergy. An allergy can't tolerate it, whereas my body just like soaks it all in. And before I know it, it's, you know, I'm done. And I'm not, I wasn't the kind of person that would black out either. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't black out or act belligerent. But I would be the person, you know, loud and being like, no, I'm so much more fine this way. And that's another thing. People use alcohol as 
a gateway to being their quote unquote better selves. They feel like, oh, and like we've all known, we know the term liquid courage, which is, it's true for some people, for some people, like they can take that shot and then they're good and they're good for the night and they're able to like be, you know, it calms them and it relaxes them. For me, it's like, no, it's liquid lava. Next up is from my conversation with Dr. Sahar Wertheimer. She is an REI, a reproductive endocrinologist, more commonly known as a fertility specialist, who terminated a pregnancy for medically necessary reasons. It was also something that she did with um, the advice and under the guidance of her rabbis. And she shared what that experience was like and what it meant for her going forward. People always ask me, are you more anxious? Because, Like when I'm pregnant, for example, because you're an OBGYN and you know what can go wrong. And I actually think, you know, it's it actually calms me a lot. Because um, I think when you know this, the breadth of what can happen and you know what is, um, what is so rare, what is less likely to happen, and even though we see horrible things happen commonly, you know, to us it's common, but in the rest of the world we know it's actually rare and, and most likely not going to happen to young and healthy people. So you kind of have a good... Um, you kind of have good context for everything that happens. So I think that when I um, got diagnosed, well, when my fetus was diagnosed with a severe neural tube defect, it kind of shook my world because I was like, you know, I do everything right. I eat my prenatal vitamins. I take my folic acid. How is this happening to me? Um, And in that respect, I guess, ever since then, I've been pretty anxious because, you know, you think bad news can skip you and then you realize bad news doesn't skip you just because you're a doctor um, or just because you're young and healthy. So basically um, what happened was uh, it was taking me a few months to get pregnant. I don't want to say I had uh, diagnosed infertility or anything like that. It was just taking me much longer than I expected. And um, my cycles were not regular. So I started using um, letrozole, which is a medication we use in fertility to help you um, ovulate. So um, I did a couple cycles of that. And then I finally got pregnant. I was really ecstatic. Um, and, uh, I, I guess I, I don't know if I, I was just so anxious because I didn't think it would take me so long, or maybe I felt some sort of guilt over taking medication. I don't know. Um, and, uh, from the very beginning, I was pretty anxious about that pregnancy. I remember once I called my mom and I, and I, oh, I remember what I was working at the fertility clinic. So at the fertility clinic, we have access to transvaginal ultrasounds and monitoring and texts. And I took advantage of that. And I was getting somebody to scan me every day, I think. Um, and um, one time they scanned me and I forgot what my dating was. And I, I thought that the baby was measuring a week small. And I just totally freaked out. I called my mom and my mom was worried about me. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I'm actually this many weeks. And it was like, a fake out. Um, and then, uh, I, I, that's just to kind of give you an idea of what kind of anxiety I was already working with at a baseline. And then basically I had been, um, I had, I had pushed off my pregnancy, um, to, oh, I had pushed off trying to get pregnant, um, because we have this really huge test as an OB, as OBGYNs in our second year out of residency called the oral boards. We take a written boards and then, um, a year later we take an oral boards. Oral boards is a huge deal. Um, it's a three hour test. You fly to Dallas, um, you prepare for it, basically your entire OBGYN career. Um, you know, if you ever seen Grey's Anatomy where people are like, they, they call it pimping the um, 
uh, the younger residents or fellows. This is all in preparation in surgical specialties of your oral boards where you get asked on the spot what kind of management you would do and have to be able to answer clearly and well. So um, I, I was studying for this test for about three months while I was pregnant and nauseous um, and just telling myself, be thankful that you are pregnant. You know, the timing didn't work out the way you wanted, but, um, but this is what you wanted. And um, kind of got through a few hard months like that. And then the, the day before I was supposed to fly to Dallas, I was uh, scheduled for my, uh, for my first trimester screen. And I went in and um, they were having a really hard time getting good pictures of the fetus. And, um, and I, I really thought it was because of the position of the fetus. I didn't think it was anything that had to do with its defect. But um, then I saw there's like this little, uh, what looked like a thin line coming out of the brain. But for some reason, I thought it was maybe the amniotic sac. I don't know. I, had I kept telling myself, I'm being too anxious. Just relax. Unless they tell me something's wrong, everything's fine. And then... Um, it took a while for the high-risk doctor to come in and review the images with me, and she's actually somebody who was prepping me for my boards. We had done some fake tests earlier that week, and she basically came in and said, I have some really bad news for you. And then my stomach just dropped, and I, I knew that it was whatever I was seeing coming out of the brain. And um, she basically told me, you have a very uh, rare neural tube defect. It's called an occipital encephalocele, basically like... Um, uh, I guess herniation of the brain contents out of the back of the brain. Um, and then she went on to tell me if she thought it was syndromic, which means do I think, does she think it was something genetic with the fetus or did, was it just like a bad luck? <laughs> and essentially they thought it was just bad luck. It wasn't linked to anything else, with, which is good news and bad news. Um, and uh, why would that be, why would that be bad news? Cause I would assume that if it's something the worst news would be, wait, this is something genetic. This is something you need to worry about with, you know, future pregnancies. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And um, yeah, genetic means bad because you have to worry about it with future pregnancies, but there is technology usually that we can overcome things like that with. Um, so you can have a good outcome. And I guess the isolated um, instances make you worried, is this going to happen again? Right. Is this something we don't know about what's causing it? Because even though we think it's not syndromic, there may be something else that we just don't know about um, that may be causing it or something beyond our level of detection. Right. Yeah. I, I totally hear that. So what happens after you get that news? So then she was telling me about the prognosis of the, the fetus and it, it just sounded horrible. She basically used um, words telling me that um, in the best case scenario it was still really, really bad. So immediately I knew what I wanted to do, um, which was, I, I knew immediately I wanted to terminate it, but obviously, you know, as a Orthodox Jew, that's not, incredibly simple. So um, I was just trying to gather information. I called my husband, got him on the line. Um, and he's a little bit uh, more likes to process, take things slowly, doesn't jump to conclusions about what we should do. And that was driving me crazy too. <laughs> and basically I went home and we called um, a rev who I, I commonly call for my medical like for my patients, what should I do or am I allowed to do this? And he wanted to gather more information on the syndrome or on the I shouldn't call it a syndrome um on the neural tube defect because it's not very common it's very rare and before I knew it I had like the head of one of the hospitals in New York's neuro radiology calling me um and um 
telling me, you know, this rev called me, he wants to know more about it. Can you send me the images? So I sent the images to a bunch of professionals. They all agreed it was really bad. Um, but I think they thought I was coming, they automatically assumed I was coming from the angle of wanting to know if I can keep it. And, um, and so they were like recommending more tests that I could do. And ultimately I had to just, and I think this is where my OBGYN kind of medical background knowledge came in. And I said, you know, all these tests aren't going to change the prognosis. It's a really bad prognosis. So um, what I want to know is can I terminate? And I think that that is really important um, for patients to kind of know how to talk to their um, rabbis and also know how to talk to their medical professionals. Like they need to be clued in on where is your brain? What do you want? Um, how can they help you get the information that you need to get? And being somebody who's been on the other side of that, I knew that that's kind of where they were going wrong. <laughs> right. You were so, able to, to, to realize that the direction that they were steering you in was not, those were, they were answering the wrong questions. No, exactly. you know, you weren't being specific enough about the questions that you were asking. So they were answering those wrong questions. Next up is Rachel Bayer. Now, she is a former prosecutor in the Bronx District Attorney's Office. She specialized in child sexual abuse and sexual crimes, and she is now a consultant working with institutions on ways to keep our children safe. And what struck me the most about this conversation overall is not only her passion for what is a really draining profession to be in, but also that there is so much that we can do to protect kids if we're willing to be open to the possibility that these terrible things can happen. Um, this, In this clip, she'll share a little bit about why she chose to go into this particular area. If you're interested in more specific ways that you can keep your kids or the kids around you safe, I do recommend that you go back and listen to this conversation with Rachel Bayer. Were you always pulled towards, you know, working in child sexual sexual abuse cases? Or was it was it something that you that you knew, you know, you, you speak about this, this wanting to, you know, do better in the world? Was that always where you felt like this is where I can make the biggest impact? I think that once I knew that I wanted to go to the DA's office, the notion of of a child who didn't have the ability or might not have the ability to speak up for themselves or who might have gone through something so traumatic that the notion of talking to someone or having someone ask questions. For me, I felt pulled to that. I really felt this notion of what does it mean to give a voice to someone who can't speak? And what does it mean to give a voice in a way where you are seeking justice? And the truth is that it wasn't just that I was pulled to child sexual abuse cases. I was pulled to sex crimes in general, mostly because it's the only type of crime that happens where people question the validity of the victim's statement. Nobody ever questions what happens if you were robbed on the street, right? No one questions you if there was a home invasion into your home and everything was taken and you were terrified. Nobody asks you, well, what were you wearing when you were in your home, right? Or nobody says to you, what do you mean they took your cell phone and your wallet? Like, did you tell them that they could? Nobody questions a victim in other types of crimes. But these crimes, there's something about it 
where people initially don't want to believe that it happened and therefore turn to the person who experienced probably the worst trauma in their life and question whether they're telling the truth or not. And to me, that's mind boggling. And I think that the notion of being able to seek justice for those victims or for those survivors of those types of crimes really pulled me in. Why do you think there's that suspicion? You're 100% right. You're, it's, you know, when you make the comparison to a robbery, you're right. Nobody says, did you say he could take your phone? Of course I didn't. Right. Why do you think there is that suspicion when it comes to sex crimes? I think people really don't understand it. I think that it's hard for people to wrap their head around the idea that someone who might look so regular and so kind and so normal on the outside, who might just look like you or me, or be someone that you have had many conversations with, could do something so bad to someone else. And when it comes to child sexual abuse, you know, I think the current CDC statistics are that somewhere around 90 or 91% of child sexual abuse is happening with someone, is happening by someone that the kid or the family knows, right? This notion of the scary stranger or that creepy person or the person that you see in that kind of introductory law and order, law and order episode where you're like, ooh, that's a scary person, stay away from that person. Right. Most of the time when it comes to child sexual abuse, it's not that scary stranger. It's someone that is known. It's someone that's good with kids. It's someone that flies under the radar. And I think there's a, there's a real cognitive dissonance that people have. This idea that someone that you might have had a conversation with or that you may have interacted with, that you may have shared a meal with or worshipped with or you know, had coffee with could do something like this. And because there's this idea of, but we didn't see it. I think people from a, just from an emotional place have a hard time reconciling that. And so therefore it's easier to believe that A, it didn't happen or B, it didn't happen the way it was shared, right? So I think that, I think a part of it is also, especially with child sexual abuse is that it's so awful and it's so like horrible it's so gross that for anyone to think that someone could do that to their kid or to another kid it's impossible it's impossible to reconcile like how could that happen next up is from my conversation with Adel Beanie she shares how she gets through life setbacks she's had her share of them as we all have and for her in particular it was about you know accepting the the challenges that come her way and what she can do about them and what she can't. So here's Adel Beanie. I show up in a way that lets people know that even though things look like they're all perfect for me now, which of course we know no one's life is perfect, it doesn't come without struggle. It doesn't come without experiences. And and, and at every po- any point in anyone's life, you're going to have ups and downs and telling people about it and also getting to show up in a way where I- I'm so unapologetic about it I don't lean it like, oh yeah, you know, my, it's, it was this and it was that. I was like, oh, I had a bad experience. My son had to go live with his dad and that's just what is. I don't make a story about it. I think that gives people permission to sort of be a little bit more unapologetic in their lives. And in that way, I feel like I get to make a difference. 100%. And the fact that you are so unapologetic is I think what <laughs> immediately drew me to you. I was like, this girl knows who she is. She, she knows yeah. the space that she occupies in the world. Is there something specific that you do to be so at home in yourself? Is there something that you tell yourself or something that you've done over the years to make it, you know, it seems like it comes naturally to you to be unapologetic. Is that just how you are? 
I was much more insecure when I was younger. I'm 36 now. I feel like as you get older, am I allowed to ask how old you are? I'm 26. Okay. Well, at 26, nothing felt confident <laughs> to me. I was petrified. The world is scary at 26. I, I think as you get older, so like if women are listening to this and they're like, I'll never get there. When I was a younger woman, I didn't feel like I would. And I also heard that as you like in your forties and fifties, it's even better. Like you're, you're just most confident. So one, I think it takes time. And two, my mother was so, so instrumental in my self-confidence and in my ability to look at my mess ups and not make it mean anything about me. She really helped me. She coached me through very hard times in a way that helped me develop myself and an understanding about just life versus making it about me. And I think that that was so important. And that's also why I'm almost like trying to be everybody's mom. Like I'm trying to, this is the things that helped me. And now I'm going to try and help you. I, I, I completely get that. What were some of the things that your mom, that your mom told you when she was coaching you through those hard things? What were some of the, what, what was, what, what was some of your mom's wisdom? Oh, my mom is so wise. Anyone that knows, like I'm always quoting my mom, even when I blog posts. I think, you know, for starters, she let me see when she messed up. We talked about different, like nothing was taboo. I think a lot of moms, it's very hard to go to them with, you know, tough stuff, especially um, with some of my divorces and some of the more intimate details about why the divorces were happening and things like that. I was able to come to her. She, she left a space open for that. And we just talked about really just like the human condition, right? We're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. It's really not about the mistakes. It's just how you move through them, how you look at them. And just you're one of the big things I actually just posted about this yesterday is like your feelings are not a testament for reality. So doing a gut check, like a a feeling check about how something's happening and how you're observing it is actually could have nothing to do with reality when you really get clear about that. So I could say, right, I have two failed marriages. My one of my kids doesn't live with me. I lost my job, my business. I could go down that rabbit hole, right? That's my that could be my feelings about it. That's not the reality. The reality is that I'm a young person who is navigating a different, difficult world. I got married very young. I made choices when I didn't yet have the wisdom or the knowledge. And through all of these things, I learned amazing things about myself. Yeah, there was a lot of pain, but there was also a lot of growth. And so this was my journey. And, and obviously, it was here to teach me a lot of things. And maybe with the view that I could ultimately help others. So it's just how you spin it. But your feelings are often not reality. This next clip, my conversation with Batya Reyes, was the first in a series that I did on domestic violence. And I did this in direct response to the movement that we had seen with Free Chava and all the activism around the Aguna movement, because we know that whenever there is an Aguna, a woman who is trapped in a Jewish marriage, we know that those never occur in a vacuum. There's always been some form of domestic abuse involved. And I felt that we needed to be looking a little bit more upstream at the domestic abuse and domestic violence aspect of this issue. So I did a four-part series. I'm going to be playing clips now from all four parts of that. And first up was Batya Reyes, who has been very open about her own experiences with an emotionally abusive relationship. And she is someone who's really wise beyond her years. Unfortunately, she's had to be. And, and, and by being open, 
she has really helped others in similar situations. Um, and I know that I learned a lot just from this conversation. You know, they have a gift. People who have NPD or any of these things that can be abusive, um, they, they really have a gift for when they see a person, they don't see the good, they see the negative and they play on the person's insecurities about their own you know, self, which is why I think that the best cure sort of for this kind of thing is an amazing self-esteem because somebody who has an amazing self-esteem, who is not always taught like you're not enough by the world, by their friends, by anyone, you know, by the, by their school or whatever person, a person who knows I'm enough just the way I am, they will spot this and they will smell this in seconds and they won't let themselves be in a situation like this. So one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about that was because I saw so much of that in our, in our world. You know, I do makeup obviously, and I see girls all the time and they're stunning, gorgeous girls, but they need to fit into this gown or they, you know, they need their hair to have this many extensions because they are not taught from a young age that they're enough just the way they are. They're taught that everyone is looking at them and everyone, you know, needs them to be a certain image and, and they need to go to this school and this type of seminary and they need to be with this kind of guy and marry that, you know, and wear this. And it's so much pressure. And for girls like that to be in a situation where someone is telling them that they're not enough, they're like, yeah, I know I'm not enough. I was never enough. You know, I've never been enough my whole life. Why should I be enough now for, for you? So I'm going to try harder. I'm going to work more. I'm going to be a better wife. I'm going to X, Y, and Z do everything, you know, to try and to try and get your needs met because I know that I was never someone who can stand on my own two feet just the way I am. I always had to change. I always had to push myself to be, to be accepted. And, and love was not, you know, a given thing. Love was not unconditional. Love was something that you needed to earn and acceptance was something that you needed to earn. So it all ties into a big picture. You know, it's not just about, you know, oh, abuses, these things and a pamphlet of look at this girl with the black eye. It's so it's, it plays on your insecurities and, and your emotions that people have had their entire lives. Um, and yeah, that's, again, one of the reasons why I, why I was like, this is something that I think we need to talk about, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and as I said, like now this has just gone and blown up and, um, people are talking about it from all different aspects. Obviously the get aspect is a huge one. Um, but there are people who get their gets and have lived with abusive relationships for, you know, years and years and years. And, um, you know, it's all different sides of the same, of the same issue, the same yeah. coin. Next up in this series on domestic violence in part two, I knew that I, you know, you can't do a series like this without talking to someone from Shalom Task Force. And I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. Shauna Friedman, who is the director of Shalom Task Force. And she really gave insight into how something like this starts, how we spot it, what it looks like. She brings up so different types of abuse, frankly, things that had never really occurred to me, that these were things that could happen. And and we really got into the nitty gritty from a clinical perspective of what abuse looks like and what we can do to prevent it. 
people automatically go to physical violence. And in many ways, as my clients will say, that's the black and blue of it, the black and white of it. Like, that's very clear, right? Like, we all, we would all very easily define someone who hits, shoves, chokes, strangles, kicks, whatever, you know, thing you can imagine, um, someone else is being abusive. Um, but that does not happen by itself. And that is not the only definition of domestic violence. And in many ways, um, that's almost the easiest one because people feel validated by that. We understand that, but that we could, we could, we could be working with someone or meet someone who's a survivor of intimate partner violence, who's maybe never experienced any physical violence. Um, they might know that there's an overt or covert threat of physical or sexual violence, but the violence could be all these other forms. And we could, we could talk a bit about those other forms. I think it's important for people to have a much broader view of, of what it could look like, what can be controlling. So we talk about psychological and emotional abuse, you know, use of, 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 you know, how we interact with each other, name, um, blaming each other, name calling. I shouldn't say each other, the one to the other, um, isolating someone, um, like, you know, not letting them have um, um, resources. So we talk about isolation a lot because, and it's, it's, when we talk about red flags later, it's something to think about. Um, we all experienced some level of social isolation over the last year. We know how hard it is not to be in touch with other people. Um, in a relationship that's fraught with um, intimate partner violence and abuse, often isolation is one of the first things you see where, and it can be very subtle, where um, the abusive party, I'll use he, though it's men are often, are, can also be victims, but the abusive party will not allow the person to have the relationships they had before. They'll say their friends aren't good enough or your family's not good enough and cut off, cut off all these people in their lives and the person becomes very isolated. And there's so many parts of that that's very terrifying, but um, what, what often happens is, is that then the person who's being abused um, won't have people to reach out to. So when they're ready to get help or they need help, they, they don't have people in their lives that are resources, right? Um, and people might be so frustrated with them because they no longer are visiting them or they're no longer calling them back that they won't be almost willing to, right? Willing to give to them. So it's this really terrible cycle. So isolation is a big one. So we're talking about physical abuse. We're talking about emotional, verbal. Um, other abuses that we see a lot of are, um, this is an interesting one, financial abuse. It's not about being on a budget as a family or as a couple. Um, it's about one person having control of it and someone not having voice. And I use that language a lot, voice. Like, it's one thing if in your relationship you choose that one person's going to be, even if it's a traditional gender role, the man's going to be in charge of the money and she's going to be in charge of the kids. People could choose to do what they want in their relationships. But if they have no voice in it, right, they can't say, oh, I want to be able to do this. Is it possible? Or can you tell me more about what's going on with our finances? And they're afraid to do that. Right, if they bring up their opinion and they think they're going to be hurt or they're afraid for other consequences, that's really problematic. Um, I think about financial abuse. I, I worked with this um, woman. She's an incredible woman, um, and she got married. And the community she got married, she is from. She got married in her late twenties, early thirties, and that was considered being older when you got married because from the community that she was from, she had work. She was always independent. Um, and they got married, and um, they, I, I think about how she describes this, that they lived in Queens, and those, I don't know if everybody here is from New York, but that's an outer borough, it's not Manhattan, and it's probably 45 minutes to get to her office in Manhattan, and, you know, the relationship started in the beginning after they got married, every morning he thought we should have breakfast together, they should have breakfast together, and he was, she was 
basically always late to work because of it, right? And she'd say, I really can't have breakfast. I can't sit around having breakfast. I need to get to work. And he's like, no, I love you so much. How can you leave me? You know, we need to have breakfast together as if it was very romantic, but it was impacting her ability to have her job. And then it, this was pre-times of, you know, cell phones all the time. And he started calling her all day at the office. So once you get there late, then he'd be calling and calling and everybody would see this. And eventually um, she was fired. Um, because she couldn't do her job. She couldn't, and then all of a sudden she became very, very dependent on him. So there was this like financial control of her, right? And then that eventually escalated. And after she had their first child, um, he became physically abusive. She literally walked into my office. This is when I was doing direct practice work with her baby, like walking out after she was hit um, and was, was able to um, get divorced. So it brings us to another type of abuse where he withheld the Jewish divorce, the get, um, for at least 10 years. I'm trying to remember all the details. And and I, I know that you're gonna have other discussions, particularly about the get issue, um, but that brings us to an idea around spiritual abuse. So we had you know, emotional, verbal, physical, um, talking about financial, and then there's spiritual abuse. And particularly when you're working with um, individuals from communities of faith, and I've worked with, I think because I, I specialize in the Jewish community, I've, I've had the privilege of working with women um, from the deeply Christian community and the Muslim community, because a lot of the dynamic is very similar where, where spiritual abuse can be defined in many different ways, but it's either use of like religion to abuse and control someone. And it's not a discussion of how observant you're gonna have, it's use of it to control someone. There's also getting in the way of someone's relationship with their experience and their spiritual identity. So not allowing them to practice in a certain way. And the psychological consequence of that is often that the person then feels terrible about themselves. So if you can imagine if you were raised to always do, always keep the Sabbath in a very particular way, right? And you're Shabbat observant and you, you can't cook on Shabbat, right? And doing that feels like a huge um, transgression of your relationship with God. And he, he is in charge of the groceries. And this is a particular case I worked with. And he was in charge to not allow her to, to not give her money and not allow her to grocery shop. So she would show up he would show up within the, the 18 minutes after the candle lighting, which is a very particular time, right? Where you're allowed to do a little work, but you're really racing against the clock. And then after that, within the, 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 the tradition of the community is to not be cooking, right? And she gets has 18 minutes to kind of pull together Shabbat. And then obviously that does not work. You cannot cook chicken or chicken soup or anything you want within 18 minutes, as we all know. And and then she would be trained to do everything Shabbat. And then he would say, you know, kind of taunt her about this. And she would feel terrible about herself. And in her mind, she felt she deserved to be abused because here she was someone who didn't keep Shabbat. So, I mean, so it, it takes on a life of its own. And you see this in a lot of um, the use of, like, religious literature um, to prove that he's the master of the house, where that's not the intention. So, um what we got into that with emotional verbal <laughs> there's just a lot of that but yeah I, I we've, we've like... covered we've covered emotional verbal emotional. physical financial and spiritual abuse and yeah. the thing that that to me is really i i, I want to take a step back for just one second because yes. when i when i heard you talk about let's say isolating someone from their friends i would like to think and and again uh, as with many topics on this podcast i have absolutely zero experience with this and i'm talking out of my butthole a little bit but yeah. i'm gonna go Enjoy for it, it. the um I would like to think that if anybody and and, you know, there have been times when my mother has said something and I have been like, no, and then done whatever I wanted. So I so I have some right. some information to back this up. I have some data on myself. So you have voice. Exactly. <laughs> no, but I would like to think that if somebody tried to tell me you can't see your friends, mm -hmm. I would say no. And then go and do like I would like to think that it, that in those kinds of situations, I would be the kind of person who would say 
I'm gonna I'm gonna do what I think is right for me. And, wh- and what's the consequence? That let's think it through. The consequence of your mother was when you were a 15 year old. Uh, no, there wasn't really much. Right. It was, okay. It was my mom okay, was a little so wait, annoying. Let's say the consequence. First of all, let's put it all. Okay. So let's go back a little bit. I know I was talking a lot. Maybe it's up. Let's go back to the, the definition. Of the second. We're looking for a pattern. So it's not like all of a sudden it's like you can't talk to your friends, family, go to work, um, do anything. It's kind of right. It's not like that. It's a subtle thing, right? So you're looking at at you know they get married and we talk about the example I shared about like, having breakfast anymore every day, right. right? So it's presented as something very romantic and very very caring. Right. But the consequence of it is loss of jobs. So in the beginning, it might be, um, it might be, um, you know, sweetie, um, I think we just need to start, stop spending so much time with your, your friend. She's, she's so flirty. She's so inappropriate. Like she's just not good for you. And then you start taking that on. Right. And then, you know, your parents, they don't really seem to like me. I don't, I don't really want to spend a lot of time with them. And in the beginning, it might be a little bit like more innocent feeling, um, um, but it is an intentional way of like with like isolating someone and withholding them from their resources. Um, and this is not about someone's anger or their, I mean, the person might have an anger issue, but that's not why people are, are we're not going to go there, but why they're abusive. But, you know, and it's not, it's not like nobody, I, I've yet to meet anyone. And I, I, I've worked with easily a thousand survivors of domestic violence, right? I met and met me some of that on the second date. It was like, you're going to not talk to your friend's family. I'm going to hit you and rape you. Right. Okay. Right. So, cause right. It doesn't happen that way. It's, it's laughable. Really, it, right. I mean, I think, you know, that would be almost easy. Like if it was really presented early in a relationship, it's often when there's some sort of bond already, there's something there. And typically the abusive party um, is someone who's charming. They have strengths. They, they're not perceived by the rest of their community and world as someone who's off or weird. I mean, you know, they're, they're typically people who, who can pull off their lives for the most part in the rest of their lives. Um, you'd be surprised. Um, I mean, you wouldn't be cause it's like almost trite to say that, but you'd be surprised some of the, the, the abusive spouses, what they are in the community. So it isn't that, um, so yes. Yeah, so you would say you would feel that you would have the voice, but if you're already in a relationship and you've already made this commitment and perhaps you're pregnant or perhaps um, there's a financial thing, uh, or you've made this decision. Maybe your parents have expressed like during the engagement, there's something that doesn't feel so great. Are you sure you want to go through this? And she decides that she does want to go through with it. Right. And, and then she already feels like on edge when someone says something, she already feels criticized. Um, you know, so it's not, it's never so isolated. And that's why I always come back to voice because in any healthy enough relationship, right. And we talk about a continuum of healthy or healthy enough, high conflict. And then we talk about abusive, you know, you, there might be consequences. It might be that you get in a fight, right? You might, the person might express it and you say, I don't want to do that. And they're like, oh, I'm angry at you. And maybe you'll have a fight for a few days or a few weeks or, you know, whatever you're going through, like that happens in relationships, but you don't feel fearful. And when you speak to survivors of domestic violence, um, they, they ultimately know, even if they've never experienced physical violence, that they're, they're afraid to express their voice. For the third part of our series on domestic violence, I spoke with Keshet Star of Ora Agunot. Now, Ora is an organization that works directly with Agoons and Agunot to get their freedom. And they're also really, they've been on the front lines of this issue. I mean, before it was a popular issue, I guess you could say. Um, and, and this was really a prevention-focused conversation. Ora is um, a big advocate for, and I think the biggest advocate for, the halachic prenup, which could really end the Aguna issue for once and for all. And it's not in this clip, but actually in the conversation, and I 
highly recommend if this is something that's even at all interesting to you, that you go back and listen to the episode with Keshet. Um, we actually do a word for word translation of what it, I mean, it's written in legalese. So, uh, you know, we go through and Keshet really walks us through what exactly is in a halachic prenup or postnup and what that means. Um, and she was really able to provide great insight on what this issue looks like. And specifically when it comes to Aguno, what we can do to prevent any more in the future. You mentioned that you deal with some agoons, as we would call them, some men whose wives don't want to um, accept the get. Um, what percentage of people would you say of men do you deal with to women? And how are those cases different? So we deal with about 5% women refusing to receive a get, 95% men. Now, part of it, our name indicates agunot. I think not everyone might know that we work with men, so that plays a role. I also think the fact that a heteromere rabbanim exists, that there are these sort of options out there available to men, means that women are less likely to go ahead and refuse, and men know that they have this option, might just pursue that instead of calling us. So there's a number of factors. The main thing I would say that's different, and this is just a good thing to keep in mind, very often get refusers will say, well, my wife is not accepting the get. It's a really common excuse. And most of the time, it's pretty much nonsense. We research, we do our own research, we vet our cases carefully, and we work with a rabbinic panel. And so if we're out there on a case, we've done our homework, and it's a legitimate case. But it's just good to know that not every person who says, oh, well, my wife won't take a get, sometimes there are more details than that. So they might be trying to extort their wife, and she's not accepting the extortion offer. And therefore, they'll tell everyone, oh, she's not accepting the get. So it's just good to know that when you're dealing with abusive personalities, they're often going to have a lot of stories about why they have absolutely no choice but to do what they're doing. Yeah. Give me a million dollars and then I'll give you the get is not someone refusing to accept a get. Right. But they'll often leave out the million dollars piece and just tell everyone like, listen, I want to give her a get. She's just not taking it. Right. Yeah. That. I have some choice words to say about that, which I will refrain <laughs> from using right now. Um, when you, you mm, okay, keep it, keep a lid on it, Rifki. Um, <laughs> save you, space here. Yeah, save, no, uh, yeah, I have to behave myself in public though. Um, when <laughs> you mentioned that you have a vetting process, what is that? How do you verify? Because we are talking about intimate things that happen in a marriage that happen that by, by their own nature happen behind closed doors. What does your vetting process look like? How do you know that you are that you are working with people who are legitimately in abusive situations and not just, let's say, some woman trying to game the system? Definitely. And one thing I'll say just to really highlight a little more the position that we take, we are very focused on the gap. We are not here to advocate for paying child support, even though you should definitely pay it, or for, you know, parental alienation, or to have parents, you know, do this, or to have people do that. That's not what we're focused on. And so part of the position that we take is that we recognize that divorce is complicated. We recognize that there's rarely just a hero and a villain. That would be super easy if that's how every case was set up, but it's not. And we understand that things are complicated, but what we do is we focus in specifically on the get. And what we're saying is that, listen, this whole divorce might be all gray, but this issue, this decision to not 
cooperate with the Jewish divorce, that's black and white. And that's where we're going to focus on. And all of our advocacy is focused on that. Even if someone's not paid child support in 10 years, we're not going to stand on a street corner with posters and yell about that. That's not the issue that we're there for. So when it comes to vetting, again, we're focusing specifically on the get. We speak to everyone involved. That's also the best way to understand what's going on. We speak to both sides. A lot of people don't realize this. We always call the get refuser. You know, hi, I'm Keshet. I'm calling from Ora. Tell me about what's going on on your end. You know, we understand that there's a complicated situation. We really do everything possible to open up that line of communication. We speak to the Bate didn't involve, to the rabbis, to the attorneys, to, you know, the uncles, friends, dog walker, whoever has played a role in the case, we speak to them and we get information. And we do that partly because if there are skeletons in the closet, it's always good to know. We always tell people that we work with that uh, we don't like surprises at ORA. You know, if there's a if there's a complicated factor going on, we want to be aware of it. And again, we recognize the complexity of the individuals involved and of the situations involved, but we also feel that we absolutely can and should take a moral stance on this particular issue, even if we understand that it's happening in the context of a much bigger and much messier situation. For the fourth and final part of my series on domestic violence, I spoke with Yael Braun, who is the only Toeness in the United States. Now, a, to- a Toen, Toenus being the female version of, is basically a lawyer for Basin for halachic, for Jewish court, I guess you could say. And Yael's pretty awesome. I have to say that since the time that we've done this interview, I've become closer friends with her and she's my kind of girl. But either way, um, what, what I really wanted to do in this conversation is do a deep dive in how the divorce process works from a technical perspective and what are some of the ways that this can go wrong. And again, looking at what are some of the ways that this gets derailed and what are some of the things that we can do to prevent that and keep that going, you know, keep that from happening going forward. And yeah, Braun was kind enough to walk me through it. And sometimes that abuse in it intentionally or otherwise happens on the part of the based in. You know, if you've made the decision to come to a based in, and this is my own thought process and feel free to interject as, mm-hmm. you know, you're the expert here. But if, if I've gotten to the point where I'm coming to a based in and I've gotten my husband there either willingly or less so, you know, he's, let's say there was no problems getting him to show up. And then to have a bunch of three guys I've never met, you know, who happen to be rabbis tell me that I have to be in marriage counseling for six months. Like that to me is, is adding salt to the wound. That it almost feels like it's not, it's not the court's decision to decide that I should get divorced. It's just their decision to figure out how that should happen. So I agree with you, but we also have to look at who we're dealing with. We're dealing with a bunch of rabbis who in their minds, um, divorce should be the last and final and, um, worst option. They do everything they can to delay a divorce because they feel that they're saving something if they don't, if they save the marriage. They feel that they're doing like the the duty, their duty, just like it's my duty to represent my clients and make sure they're getting the best possible deal and feeling advocated for, being advocated for and being comforted and so on and so forth. Their job is to do um, what a rabbi is supposed to do. And in their mind, that's what they're supposed to do. Um, I don't agree with it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not excusing them. I'm just explaining their side of it. 
Um, but, but yeah, it, 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 well, but the truth of the matter is sometimes it's not terrible because there've been plenty of times where I have clients, you know, male and female, cause I do have both. I'm going to have said, listen, my, my husband wants to leave me. We haven't even gone to marriage counseling. I really think what, you know, what needs to be fixed is workable. Um, he's just, he's giving up. He just doesn't want to be with me anymore, but it's not because we don't love each other. He's just, you know, maybe past trauma or whatever. Um, he just, it's too much for him. He doesn't want to work on it. Um, or he feels hopeless. He feels that it's hopeless. And they have gone to marriage counseling and they were able to work it out and they were happier for it. So I can't, I can't tell you that it's always terrible, but when it is terrible, it's, it's really terrible. Um, but I have had, I have, I, I can't lie to you. I've seen it work to the benefit of my client as well. And I've had made the argument in Besden that we need to do Shalom bias. Um, because sometimes that is what's needed on behalf of my client. And I'll always do whatever my client needs what's in the best interest of my client. If it's against, you know, even if it's against, you know, what we're saying, you know, and perpetuating that, um, we shouldn't allow the rabbis to have that kind of control. But at the end of the day, it is their best in. And depending on, I'm not going to lie to you, depending on the case, I go to a different best in for different things. If I know a Bezdin is famous for pushing Shalom Bias and my client really wants Shalom Bias, yeah, I'm going to go to that Bezdin. If I know a Bezdin um, is, doesn't push Shalom Bias or they, they understand, <clears throat> excuse me, they understand, you know, abuse if it was an abusive situation or, the, or they, they get it. I'm going to that Bezdin. I have a plethora of, <laughs> of an array of Bezdins for that reason. Um, because it is not one size fits all, you know, rabbis are people too, and they all have their own personal experiences and agendas. And I need to use that for my, towards my client's advantage. This next clip is from my conversation with Sterney Steinmetz. Now Sterney started an organization called My Extended Family, which supports children in single parent homes. And for me, what was really interesting was that this was a situation where Sterney herself was, was a single mother for quite some time. And she saw that there was something missing for her kids, um, particularly her son. And she wanted to do something about it and taking that initiative and just going for it and seeing what are the ways that she can be involved and help those around her so that no one has to deal with things alone like she felt she did sometimes. And that's how my extended family came to be. And she was kind enough to share that story with me see that there's this enormous need. Did you have an idea for the kinds of services that you wanted to provide or even how to go about doing that? Yes and no. I've only knew my experience and I knew what my kids could have used or did, you, did need in that time. So we started talking about that and I, I was lucky enough because I was in the real estate world. I brought in some of the real estate players that I was doing business with. A lot of them, you know, in good financial situations and we talked about what we can do and at first to be honest people shied away from it they were like you know two parents got divorced we're really sad for the kids but like let them figure it out you know it's not the same as like coming to somebody and saying you know um the six-year-old has leukemia we gotta help them it's really different um people were scared of getting involved in the divorce or getting pulled into court cases and all those kinds of messy things that go along with divorces. You know, people that wanted to get involved, but they were like, do we really want to go down this route? This route? Do we really want to get involved in such a messy, potentially messy situation? And so the first step was to like really define 
who we are and what we're doing. And we decided we were going to be really um, parent. We say that word in, in Yiddish, like, we're not going to take sides. That's really what it means. Like, we're going to be really um, focused on the kids, not on the parents. And we're going to be there for the children. We are going to make sure that the children have a stability that perhaps they're not getting at home because the parents are fighting in court or the kids are going back and forth between homes. And, you know, so much happens in a divorce. Um, kids get blamed or they feel guilt or, you know, they don't have that family structure or the, the father has to work crazy hours. He doesn't get to see the kids enough. I mean, there's so much that we can talk about. Um, but we decided that we were basically going to help the parents give the kids the best life possible um, by focusing on the actual needs of the children. Um, and we started slowly. We opened up only in Brooklyn and Flatbush. Uh, we opened up my son and family. We called it that because we felt like we wanted to just be an extension of the family. We weren't here to take over the role of a parent. We were here to lend a helping hand to the parents um, and be there for the kids. Um, when the parents maybe are struggling with other things. This last clip is taken from my conversation with Dr. Alyssa Hellman. I think that women's health is always going to be, if not my favorite, then certainly among my top three favorite topics to speak about. I do think that particularly when it comes to just a real medical perspective on what happens in our bodies, we are woefully uninformed and there's no reason for that. We can be more informed, even if we're not science people. We can we can learn about the things that we need to learn to properly take care of ourselves. And Dr. Hellman is just as passionate about that, probably way more passionate about that than I am. And she was kind enough to walk me through what made her choose to be an OBGYN, what she hopes to accomplish with the education that she puts out in the world, and what that means for all of us and how we can just take better control of our health going forward. Even just in my office practice, I've had some Orthodox women come to me and they're at, like either on their second or third kid and I didn't deliver their previous ones. And, you know, we're at the postpartum visit. I'm like, okay, so what do you want for birth control? They're like, what? No one's ever asked me that before. I'm like, what do you mean? That's like a normal postpartum visit question. Um, you know, if you want, they're like, and you know, these are people who've had a baby every 12 to 15 months because no one has ever talked to them about it and whether they wanted that or not is what it is but like sometimes by that third kid they're like yeah I'd like something you know um but like if you're never asked that question and because that's just a normal postpartum question regardless of if you're Jewish orthodox whatever um you know sometimes you just have to like take the background away and be like, okay, medically, what is responsible of me as a doctor to ask? You can say no, that's fine, you know, but but you can't assume that based on someone's lifestyle, they want a certain thing. Right. When you work, um, when you work within the Orthodox community, is there a, a what's kind of like the baseline level of education that you see happening? Do you, do you feel like the women that are coming into your practice, um, really across the board, not specifically Orthodox, are like aware of what is happening in their bodies and, and, and what, and just, and just how stuff works and what they should be keeping an eye out for? So I think it's, it's probably a bigger mix. Um, I mean, there's definitely women who, and I'm trying not to use the word girls, even though sometimes I feel like I'm seeing girls, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, you know, engaged, very still in their teens. And, um, So, but yes, they're women. So I'm really trying to change that language for myself. Um, But, you know, 
a lot of people, a lot of women getting married, um, especially like right out of seminary, which is like the year. Um, You're talking about 19 year olds, yeah. basically. 19, right. 18, 19, um, 20, 22. So really like, you know, kind of their last education was either out of high school um, or more of like a religious year, like study year or maybe like a degree um, online or, um, you know, like a college um, program where like maybe they're, they're still living at home and they're not like off to college, like, you know, more secular lifestyle, I guess. Um, and there's really not a lot of education of women's health female anatomy, sexual health um, in Orthodox Jewish schools. And I'm not saying that across the board at all. Like there are, I'd say a, a little bit more on the modern side. There definitely is great education with that, both for both boys and girls. Um, but, you know, and it also really, really depends on the home. So if the mom, like your mom is like, hey, this is a normal thing. This is important. We're going to do this. I'm going to do this for my daughter. Then definitely they're, um, you know, some women are more informed as they get to this point in their life. But um, in general, I, I really don't think there's good education about it. Thank you so much for listening today and always to many, many, many more years together. Remember, we're having a party on our own terms. You can get the uh, link for the code to get a Starbucks on me uh, in the show notes. And uh, if you can't get those because you're listening on Spotify, then you can find it at impactfashionnyc.com. The Be Impactful podcast is a project of Impact Fashion, the clothing line I created because I believe that we are all deserving of the beautiful things life has to offer. See my modest designs that are available in sizes 2 through 24 by going to impactfashionnyc.com. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art. There are currently 12 people listed by Ora Agunot as a recalcitrant party. View their names, photos, locations, and details of their cases by visiting getorit.org slash recalcitrant-parties. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses. Original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Riff Yitzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.